Hiya! Welcome to another episode of The Jewel Case with me, John Darcy, as usual, broadcasting on a Tuesday night at 8pm on some of my favourite community radio stations in Northern Ireland, Lisburn's 98FM, Bangor FM and FM 105 in Downpatrick. And as usual, we're talking to a local artist about the work they make. And tonight we have a very special guest. But just in case you're wondering, our opening intro song is a song called The Dark by a local band based in Belfast, but originally from Stroke City, Stroke Ported Down, called Beauty Sleep. And just remember that if you're a podcaster, if you're a millennial and you like listening to things in your own time, uh, you can get The Jewel Case online on iPod, on Google, Android, Stitcher, any place you get your podcast. And it's thejewelcase.johndarcy.com for all our past episodes. We've had cheesemakers, wrestlers, skateboarders, musicians, visual artists. Tonight, we have one of Northern Ireland's premier DJs, music curators, soundtrack composers, all-round good guy with the best curly red hair that I've seen in a long time. It's David Holmes. David, how you doing? I'm doing good, John. That's <laughs> David, it, you know, best I, intro I've ever heard anyway. <laughs> I am actually grateful because uh, it's not that I'm having you on the show, but you're having me on because you've invited me into your uh, studio here, which is the best bedroom studio I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's been a bit of a labour of love, this place. So uh, I kind of just tried to make it really cosy. And uh, I think if you live, if you work in a good environment, you know, good things happen. And I invite different people or people I'm collaborating come to the studio. Uh, you know, we just always, I don't know, we just have always have a great time. Everything's really close at hand. You know, everything's easily plugged in. And it's just got a good, I tried to just made it into a place that had a good vibe. I, I, I would say so. I'm sitting sort of in the centre of the room and I'm probably within arms reaching distance of like a, a million vintage synthesizers and preamps and all this other gear. It seems like uh, everything's close at hand. Yeah, it's just, you know, we just wanted to make it enjoyable and fun and fast. I think, you know, when you're being creative, um, moving quickly yeah. is a really good thing, especially in music. You're having like a technical issue or things just aren't happening. It's so easy just to get bored and mm. you get distracted and to be in an environment where everything is close at hand, like all my records and books and different synths and other machines, it just makes the whole process just really enjoyable. In case you're not aware of David's work, David is really well known for composing soundtracks to movies like the Oceans trilogy, Oceans 11, 12, 13, that's the trilogy, right? <laughs> Steve McQueen's Hunger, also some TV shows, but also, um, I mean, you originally found acclaim uh, as a DJ and being one of Belfast's most loved DJs and the dance scene when it originally exploded with like gigs at the art college and things like that. One of the things I'm most interested in is sort of your role as curator of music, uh, crate digging and pulling out sort of these songs that no one's ever heard of and putting them together in a mix. And one of, I guess, your earliest, or maybe not your earliest, but things that really brought attention to you was the Essential Mix back in the late 90s. So that sort of really solidified your role as not only like DJ, but oh, this guy's gonna, you know, bring some really interesting music to the table, things that maybe we didn't expect to bring together. Can you sort of maybe sum up sort of that early stage of beginning to DJ, finding your feet in music? Well, I mean, it's not a black and white kind of discussion, you know, it's, it's, it's your whole life, really. I mean, listen, before DJing, 
was even a possibility. I was always in the music. So, I, you know, the music came first for me. Mm-hmm. DJing was just something that happened because I had great records. Yeah. And that's what got me into DJing. It was, it, 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 you know, it, in, one, in one hand, it was an accident. But on the other hand, I'd been kind of like, you know, working towards that without actually realizing it just by being obsessed with records. So when I, I, I was very fortunate to be the youngest of 10 kids growing up in the 70s. And when I mean the youngest, the next one up for me is six six years or six years apart. Right. And then my eldest was like sort of like 19 years older than me. There was 10 of us. So, <laughs> and, and being the youngest, I had a whole, a lot of brothers and sisters who were into music, teenagers, you know, yeah. but it was in the 70s. A lot of the, I inherited all, a lot of my first love of music, which was punk mm. and uh you know, I discovered the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Damned and the adverts and the jam and stuff through my brothers and sisters. It's, I suppose it's just like how kids discover music now, but only I was ex- being exposed to things like punk and New Wave and a lot of those great bands and also really diverse things like, you know, Elvis and Sammy Garfunkel and, you know, Gladys Knight and the Pips and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, soundtracks. I got my. I heard my first soundtrack, which was like Midnight Cowboy by John Barry, which is still arguably one of my favorite. Well, definitely one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. I love all this music. You can't really analyze why. Also, growing up in the Troubles, I was actually spending a lot of time watching films. A lot of time, you just weren't allowed out. <laughs> so you had three channels. You would buy the TV Times to see see what was on. And then you'd be watching all the Morricone here in Morricone and a few dollars more. And also like John Carpenter films and all of that, the stuff that I was just watching and absorbing as a youngster made its way into my work as a, you know, a soundtrack producer. This is the melting pot stew that was becoming your music. Taste. Yeah. But I was kind of like, I was really into the music. Yeah. So getting into sort of uh DJing was just something happened because I had great records. But then you kind of evolve through that period of just growing up. And, you know, I remember when video recorders were first available. I'm so lucky to have one. Mm. Uh, And going to the local video shop, which was someone's house on Florenceville (laughs) Avenue on the Armour Road, and uh, wrapping the door and people are sitting having their dinner and says, can I rent a video? And you go in and they'd be like, one wall would be all VHS and the other wall would all be Betamax. And I remember going in and watching, you know, I rented The Long Good Friday with Bob mm-hmm. Hoskins, which is another killer score, which actually influenced a movie that I just did called Mindhorn with Julian Barrett from The Mighty Bush. It was weird that that sort of coming back, it was Francis Monk as the composer and Quadrophenia. Uh, they were the, I'm, I'm watching those two movies. I remember watching Quadrophenia and my mind being completely fully blown. And I knew everything changed that night. <laughs> I went from like listening to, you know, punk records to being really into like American R&B and, and, and The Who and The Small Faces and the action and the creation and all those great 60s bands. And that, that whole thing just got really deep, you know. And then I started DJing when I was 15 in the Abercorn. And, you know, I was getting paid 15 quid in 1983. That would have bought you three albums. You I was going to say, how much is that in record equivalent? Well, it was three forty-nine <laughs> for an album in 1983. Um, I remember, like, 
like it was yesterday. And we used to go to Caroline Music in Lower Garfield Street and Smith's Records as well. And then making tracks and mm. uh, Heroes and Villains. I got some amazing records in Heroes and Villains. Actually, that's where I discovered the white noise and was first exposed to Delia Derbyshire and uh, David Voros. And uh, it, it's kind of extraordinary. I remember buying that record and just thinking, this is unbelievable. I've never heard anything like this in my life. That's also something I wanted to pick up on is that your sort of interest in the left field and in sort of the music concrete. I mean, a lot of people will hear that and just maybe it won't speak to them or or they'll not really appreciate it maybe as music or whatever, well, for whatever reason. But you're like actively embracing that, pulling that in, mixing it up with more popular music. Um, You know, music, apart from being something that you've always loved since you could remember, as you get older, that obsession sort of takes on different strands and you start to appreciate music for other reasons. Mm. And especially in the world of production, I'm always listening for for things that I can actually sort of use as an influence or you start to hear things that, that just spark an idea. Like I love outsider music. There's so many records I have were actually so far ahead of their time. I even think the people who were making them didn't even realise. That sort of outsider art aspect and maybe music that hasn't reached the masses and the populace, I mean, for me, that sort of seems a little bit of your prerogative when you're making like a mix such as your new release, part of the Late Night Tales series. I feel like you're sort of, you know, poking and like shoving this music that no one's heard of so that everyone else can hear it. I think there's definite sort of periods where you go through. I used to have a record shop in Ann Street called Sugar Sweet Records. Uh-huh. And <laughs> it, it was failed. It was doomed to fail from the word <laughs> go because we would get a box of records in. We'd hear one that we just absolutely loved and we'd play it at our club. And then people would come to the shop looking for it. And we had a box of them under the counter and we would tell them that we didn't have it because we wanted to keep it exclusive to us. Where now I'm the complete opposite of that. You know, you want to share your music and mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, I've been doing this radio show for NTS, um, which is like an online community radio uh, station in London. It's great because I know that all these records that I've been collecting and buying over the years, I'll be able to actually play them to people mm. and put them out there. Because, you know, records can also become an addiction where... You know, there's so many people who just continually buy records. And for me, it's like if I buy a record, I want to enjoy it. Mm. And I don't want it to just sort of lie, you know, in a, in a corner, yeah. you know, having only played it once. There's so many records that I go back to. And once you get that kind of that hit from a piece of music, you want it again and again. And it's, it's no different with people who just have to buy this tune that they've just heard five times on the radio and suddenly they're hooked. It's the same thing. Well, there's that's the interesting part of music, that there's this sort of emotional contagion we get where we hear music, we attach all these memories and nostalgia to it. So like the Midnight Cowboy soundtrack for you, that must hit really emotionally hard anytime you hear it or experience it. There's so much music we take in day to day now with our mediated lives that maybe that can get dulled down or maybe there's music there's so much stuff that we just can't connect and if you're buying records all the time how how do you start to emotionally connect when there's so much music coming into your life i try to listen to the records that i buy 
and give them time and not be in such a hurry to buy new records all the time. Mm. I mean, you can only listen to one record at a time. You know, Unless you're like John Cage and put them all on at once. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, that's a, an experiment. But to actually truly listen to a piece of music, you can only listen to a, a piece at a time. And, yeah. you know, like I've said, when I find a piece of music that I love, I want to listen to it again and again. But I'm actually, because music has become a, a huge part of my career, my life, 24-7, it's, it's really important for me that I continually still have time to listen to music and not for and just never forget that obsession was actually responsible for me doing this for a living uh-huh. and actually one of the ways I do that now is you know I got a dog and <laughs> it's the best thing ever because I, I take her to the the park and the forest every day for like at least an hour and a half and at that time I'm just always listening to music and, the, you know, the phone isn't going and, you know, I'm not getting emails. When you listen to music on headphones, it becomes such a much more intimate experience. Uh-huh. And people only do that now and again. But if you like for me doing it every day, it's great. I actually find it really inspiring having a dog and being able to just walk in the forest and listen to music. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. So you're sort of maybe one of your main processes of listening now. The new album, the new mix, that's for Late Night Tales for me, is constructed sort of like that journey in between each track, there is a little bit of ambience and that changes and we're in different scenes. Sometimes we're like in sort of like a forest when it leads into Buddy Holly, suddenly we're at the beach and there's waves. Was that part of the mix construction for you to bring us on a journey or is that something I'm reading into it? No, for sure. I mean, like, it's 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 not there as wallpaper, you know, it, it means something. I think I, when you're trying to do a mix like Late Night Tales, to me, Late Night Tales and, you know, whoever's listening, don't let this put you off. <laughs> but <laughs> to me, what I was trying to do with Late Night Tales was make an, a record about memory and love and family and and death Mm. and you know my take on like the afterworld so to speak or what i envisage it being through my own imagination you know i'm not a religious person but i love the idea of meeting my parents again and if if that doesn't happen then it doesn't happen but i I, i'd like to hang, hang on to that um I mean, I don't like like none of us. None of us know for sure, but exactly. you know, my brother and but also in a celebratory way with that album. I also wanted to make it an enjoyable listen without actually sort of knowing the backstory. But I think all those transitions are more of, of a way. It, it's just about being transported, having a diverse selection of tracks, yeah. but to be able to kind of like thread them together in a seamless way and actually a way of doing that is to kind of put certain tracks in certain places so when you get to the end of them it doesn't feel so jarring Mm -hmm. if you go somewhere completely different you know what i'm saying so there are a lot of destinations on this journey like we're you mentioned like it's about love and memory 
and death and like the start of it is for me so much about death it's it's great father in the sky then there's the track by the children of sunshine it's a long way to heaven and then we're on to alan mclean talking judgment day blues and there's so much questioning like what will happen after and i mean this is something you were sort of ruminating on in the holy pictures as well and i guess for you maybe it's like the curation as part of you working it all out too uh, yeah, I think it can be a, a real cathartic experience. I mean, like, listen, you know, I lost my brother a few years ago and, you know, he he was young. He was 59, but that's really young in my book and um, way too early. And and different friends for different reasons, you know, like people who have been sort of taken away yeah. long before they, they should have. I wanted to remember those people as well. And I love working in a conceptual sort of space because I think you can really be inspired by that and one of the things that I wanted to, to, to kind of get across in the compilation was like memory and just remembering times but not in a sentimental way or even in a sentimental way it doesn't matter mm. I, I love looking back with fondness you know I, I, I think it's good not to forget and in the same way when people you know die I, I don't you just can't forget about them there is, yeah. a, I, I think, quite a sentimental aspect to the album. I mean, there's the BP Fallon collaboration, um, which is sort of like a spoken word track uh, remembering Henry McCulloch, uh, who left us a short while ago. I mean, he, he's bringing back all these memories of Henry and really paying tribute to his career, a career that maybe some people aren't really aware of. And that's an amazing document now of Henry McCulloch's life in a way. I think so. I think, it, you know what, that was extraordinary how that happened because BP called me the day before Henry's funeral. And I didn't know Henry. Huge amount of respect for the guy, obviously. Yeah. And BP had known him since 1966. And B, but BP's a really good friend of mine. He says, look, can I, can I stay at your place? And I picked him up from the train station. I brought him back here. And we just basically, you know, he was, he was telling me, I could see that he was clearly heartbroken. And he says, look, after the funeral, maybe if I come back, do you fancy like doing something together in the studio? And I said, sure. We didn't really think about what it could be. But that day I was just working on a piece of music, just downstairs actually on a piano and just messing around with some chords. And I, I just thought, actually, they sound really lush. You know, it's almost spiritual. It had a real sort of come together, primal scream <laughs> kind of feeling to it. So I kind of then took the chords and come up here and just got a few synths and organs and stuff and built it and I went, oh, this, this could be really good. I texted BP and I said, look, if you're coming up, let's do something about Henry. BP got here and I put the headphones on and he heard the music just for the second time. He had nothing written, he closed his eyes and this came out. I remember it was 1966 in Dublin and I met you in a beat cellar. The people had come over from Blackpool. And it, it was the whole thing was done, done in one take, and uh, he had nothing written down, but he managed to chart his whole life since he had known him right up until being at his funeral. And it was it actually it was a really beautiful moment. It's such a really beautifully constructed verse. 
as well. It is a verse, it's, it's spoken word poetry, it's, you know, calling on like sort of the beat poets and I, I was actually getting urge of Terry Hooley whenever Terry used to get up on stage, you know, and do his sort of spoken word tributes to his fallen comrades. Yeah. What was it like for you sitting, engineering that, just hit the record button and just take it in? Yeah, I mean, I just, I just felt, I, I just knew we caught something. Mm. And it, what was interesting is moments like that, you, you capture you know, we couldn't have done that the day before. We couldn't have did it that morning. We couldn't have done it the day after or two weeks later. It happened in that moment. It was BP having spent an entire day with his thoughts, totally with his friend and meeting his, his family and, you know, musicians that he had played with, like local guys from like, the, you know, that Enniskillen crew and arriving back in a really, you know, dimly lit studio with a piece of music that he felt and, and was able to just come out with this this amazing eulogy for his friend. You know, it was actually moments like that you capture, you know, and, and that was, we both realised that we went, you know, because you could hear it when he gets to the end, like him kind of like just choking up slightly and you could, you could tell that he, he was, you know, it was quite an emotional moment. It, it is really powerful, but it's also filled with humour too. I mean, the line that really stuck out for me was when he says, oh, and then this chap came along, he'd been the bassist and co-writer and co-singer and a popular skiffabilly, rockabilly, tubabilly combo called The Beatles, and yeah. it was Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's just like, I was just, wow, when he did that, you know. Um <laughs> But, you know, he's going to be doing it this Saturday. Um, oh, yes, we forgot to mention there is the album launch party itself. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Um, well, it's just we're just launching the record. It's this Saturday at the Maple Leaf. Unfortunately, all the tickets sold out really quickly. But we've got Barry Woolnife, who does the Great Spirit Father in the Sky. He's mm. coming over from London to do that. Alan McLean. Talking Judgment Day Blues, he's doing that. Yeah. And BP's coming up from Dublin and I'm going to get on stage and and play my Vox Continental organ <laughs> through tons of reverb and Documenter are going to do the guitars and, 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 and BP's going to just, you know, do it live. We haven't even rehearsed. I mean, we rehearsed last night, but <laughs> BP hasn't rehearsed. So we're going we're gonna to run through that, uh, you know, on the day. Uh, you mentioned Barry Wilna and he sings the opening track on the mix and it's Great Father in the Sky and wow this one took me by surprise. Tears that I cry, tears of love, crying for my darling wife up above, never question why, who lives or dies, Great Spirit Father, Father in the Sky. track it's sort of very like plaintive and powerful and raw like the vocal is very dry uh very minimal backing tell us a bit more about how you even came across this track because it's on that moin do label which is andrew weatherall's subscription label and there's another track from the label later on on the compilation too that's the alan mclean talking judgment blade day blues i mean I, andrew's a friend of mine and we go back like a long time you know, you know, 25 years. And uh, he's also, he's always been someone who I really looked up to musically. And, you know, even just 
you know, he, he's a very, very bright man and incredibly funny and just all round inspiring person. I'm going to be honest. And he has a radio show um, on NTS as well that I always listen to. And, you know, he played that track on there. That's where I first heard it. And then I heard about his subscription label yeah. and what it was about. And so I just bought the subscription and got all the, the sevens, which there was only like 300 of each. And the great spirit father in the sky was one of them and talking Judging Day Blues was another. When the time comes for my eternal sleep, all my ancestors will I meet. And will there be this pure white light? There be a god and choirs of angels praying Or maybe the devil and hellhounds baying And if I have to repent for all my sins I won't even know where to begin You know, they just fitted like a glove The whole concept of, of God's waiting room and, and what it kind of meant to me So it was kind of, you know just another piece of the jigsaw, really. Tell us the story about God's waiting room, because as you made me a tea um, in the kitchen earlier, and thanks for that as well, <laughs> uh, you told me the story of God's waiting room. And describe for our listeners what's that, what that is. Um, God's waiting room is the name of a bar. I don't know who coined the phrase, but it's basically the Oak Lounge in the Eric Glen on the Armour Road. Historically, God's waiting room is, is kind of what we would call like an old man's bar. Not only is it a beautiful space lined with wood, it's 80 years old, this bar. Nothing's really been touched. There's no television. There's no music. There's no slot machines. It's just a place for a conversation and, 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 you know, a drink. Yeah, I've been drinking there for years. And it was dubbed God's waiting room because it was often the last place people, like some of the old timers were seen before they passed on. So I just thought that was just like a lovely metaphor for a club night. You know, it was just like music from 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 birth to death. And you could play anything in there. Yeah. But if it's your own personal selections and you're playing such a, a variety of different music, then um, it becomes just really honest. And it is what it says on the tin, you know. I don't want to linger too much on the God's Waiting Room and the sort of the album's part focus on death and what comes next. But the final track in the mix is a collaboration between yourself and John Hopkins with a vocal performance from Stephen Ray and it's a reading from Seamus Heaney's translation of um, the Aeneid, am I, am I Aeneid. saying? Aeneid. Book 6. Elsewhere Anchises, fatherly and intent, was off in a deep green valley, surveying and reviewing souls consigned there, those due to pass to the light of the upper world. It so happened he was just then taking note of his whole posterity, the destinies and doings, traits and qualities of descendants dear to him. But seeing Aeneas come wading through the grass towards him, 
He reached his two hands out in eager joy. His eyes filled up with tears and he gave a cry. At last. Are you here at last? I always trusted that your sense of right would prevail and keep you going to the end. And am I now allowed to see your face, my son, and hear you talk? The album's been a journey, but when you get here, and it's actually quite short whenever you get there, and it's a really amazing cadence, the album. How, how did this come about? I had directed a short film called I Am Here, inspired by the death of my brother. Uh-huh. And in the film, which you can see online, just type my name, I am here. It's there and uh, <laughs> I am here, it's there. Um, so uh, and so you can see there and uh, if you watch the film, you'll understand that when that the extract from Seamus's book, Elsewhere and Cassie's, when I was a friend of mine, Lola Roddy, local Belfast actor, sort of legend. Yeah. He showed me the poem, or he showed me the extract from the book because he said, this is really similar to your film Mm. about, uh, you know, uh, a man meeting his son in the afterworld, you know. I I don't want to give, you know. (laughs) You don't want to spoil it. Sorry, spoilers. Spoiler alert. Um, So, yeah, so they had a lot in common. And when I read it, I just thought it was a beautiful piece. And it was also another thread to the fact that God's Waiting Room is kind of like a very Northern Irish record in a way. And, you know, Song Song, who I, you know, produced, um, I'm Not In Love, the the cover, the 10cc cover. You know, they're from, they live in Brooklyn, but they're from Monaghan. Oh, right. And then Di Hexen is from Belfast, Documenter from Belfast, and Henry McCulloch's from Belfast. Seamus Heaney is from Derry. So it, it had a real Northern Irish kind of theme uh, so it just everything all that stuff you just feel your way through these things mm-hmm. you know you don't have a a plan you have an idea and then slowly but surely things starts to you know just evolve and and until you've got something that you consider to be a finished piece it was one of Heaney's last writings actually the, the translation so I guess there's that sort of like sense of mortality there too that I am here, you're here. Uh, but the, the, the quote that really stands out for me is that line, and Stephen Ray delivers it so beautifully, at last, are you here, at last? Yes, that was the correct amount of Northern Ireland yes. on your sleeve. You know, <laughs> Are you I, here? I, are you here at last? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. When I first heard that, it kind of threw me, and I didn't really fully understand it but i got it you know i understand what he was saying but it was just that slight sort of change of voice at that moment and i just thought i just thought it was perfect it's just one of those things i was so lucky to have steven he came here for a day we tried a few different deliveries and how we should say it the, the speed of it you know and that you know obviously what we what you've heard is 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 how it finished up but it didn't take long we actually it was really a, a lovely day and he's such a professional and i've got so much respect for him as an actor i think he's a, a really great actor 
Do you find that being based back in Northern Ireland now that you is that sort of what's sort of drawing you back into the Northern Irishness in terms of working with more Northern Irish artists, um, featuring them say on the mix, but also doing these collaborations, producing bands like Documenta, um, because you were in LA for a while, um, doing the whole Hollywood lifestyle and things like that. Has the has the geographical move changed your music? Do you think? Oh well, you're always going to be influenced by where you live, you know for sure. You know, if I was living in Morocco, God knows what would be happening. But, you know, it's kind of like when I lived in L.A., we made the Unloved record, which is kind of steeped in Spectre and Jack Nietzsche and the Wrecking Crew and, you know, all those kind of great kind of like L.A. kind of producers and musicians and stuff. And when I'm here, I suppose, I don't know. I mean, I could, I suppose Late Night Tales, as it is now, would never have sounded the way it is if I had have been living in LA doing the compilation. But, you know, I think you just basically, um, you know, as they say, sort of write about what you know. Mm. And if I'm into a project and I'm, I'm really into it and it actually means something, that's the, the music I'm probably most kind of proud of. Because yeah. it, it kind of transcends music in a way. It becomes about a person or a place or a time. And... You know, it's good to have that piece of music, but it's it's what is beyond that piece of music that really matters. So it, it kind of becomes, you know, you know, unreviewable. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's a good way to frame it. Yeah. <laughs> well, in a way, it does because it becomes really personal. Yeah. So it no, doesn't. Like, right. What what I'm saying is, I'm not saying you can't review it, but I'm just saying you can say it's the worst thing ever, mm. and that will just mean nothing to me. Yeah. I won't be. That yeah, yeah. Get, I, I won't okay. be like, oh, he doesn't like my record. I'll be going. And actually, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, you, you know what I'm saying. Well, so. it's, it's the process is again, like you said, this catharsis of you dealing with all of these issues that are touching you. How do you know when it's actually done? A mix like this. Uh I George Lucas once said about movies. He says, "You never finish movies. You abandon them." <laughs> this album was a bit like that. I had to kind of abandon it. How long are we working on it for? Well, just on and off. But when the whole thing becomes kind of personal, then you sort of develop this kind of, um, I suppose, you develop a kind of like a, a responsibility. Yeah. And that responsibility sort of carries a weight on your shoulders uh-huh. for a while. You know, when I did I Am Here, I mean, that was, the, that was a massive responsibility because I was making a film. There was someone people in there playing my parents and my brother. Uh, you know, it's so it's it, it, it's a big deal. Like I ended up actually having the craziest panic attack but two days before we started shooting. Mm. But then when I realised I wasn't having a heart attack, it made me realise that I just had to enjoy it and just get on with it and, and make the film. And yeah. that, it, so it was kind of like a blessing um, that I had a panic attack. Because <laughs> it was like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm directing a movie, you know? And, you know, directing a short film is is like directing sort of 15 minutes of a feature film. Uh, yeah. It still takes the same amount of crew and, you uh-huh. know, coordination and, you know, every single detail that goes into that, like makeup and wardrobe and, and just casting it is, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's really, really intense because, you know, you're dealing with your family here. It's not like, uh, you know, you can just get, oh, well, he'll do the part or, you know, <laughs> it had to be like the right person, so... So it's a lot easier to do a mix in your computer, pulling all your records from the shelves and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> listen, 
You could do that all day because it's just like, you know, it's just a whole collection of good records. We talked about you sort of assembling your record collection over the years. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was how your harvesting of music has changed over the years. And especially as we melt into streaming and clouding a digital world. One of the great things about the 21st century and me as a 47 year old, so Do I need to edit that out? <laughs> no, you don't. People generally get lazier when they get older. But the great thing for me is I can just buy records from my computer, mm-hmm. whether it's from Boomcat or Soul Jazz or Rough Trade or, yeah. you know, everything is so available. Um, and it can just be delivered to my house or I can just download something from, like, you know, iTunes if I want it quickly and it's it's available i'm constantly buying records from you know different places trunk records you know so it's Does kind it of mean you don't do the sifting and the crate digging like you used to i when i go to when i go to different countries i do mm. you know what i mean when i go to london i'll go down to rough trade and i'll go to soul jazz and there's loads of other little sort of offbeat kind of places where i go in paris and different markets and stuff that I know have great record stores and different record dealers that I visit. But when I'm at home, I can just buy everything I want from my computer. You know, one of the the great things about the 21st century, there's different websites that I can go on or different people I follow on Facebook or whatever. You know, it's just coming up on my feed. Check this out. You check Mm. it out. Oh, that's amazing. And then you can just buy it at your fingertips and you know you don't even have to wait for the vinyl you know I mean? you can collect your uh, mp3s from here yeah <laughs> and you know the vinyl will be with you in two days so it's kind of like it, it's made it so much easier when i was young obviously you had to go digging you know you had to go like record <laughs> shops buy magazines find record shops meal order you had to send away for stuff uh-huh. it's crazy and but i i've also been really lucky because I've got brothers and sisters living in the States. My mum used to go over there and always bring me back records from Chicago mm. and stuff. And Well, I was trying to find some of the tracks from the Late Night Tales compilation online. I mean, there's some stuff there that you just can't find. There's nothing on there because it's obscure. Mm. You know, it's on there for a reason. Um, oh, you're not just nerding out. Oh, no way. Like, yeah. That's too easy to do that. Uh-huh. I don't want to make records for record diggers. Yeah. I want to make something that means something to me. Well, the stuff that's on there that you are introducing to people for the first time, there are a ton of exclusive tracks, and we've already named some of the collaborations you've done. We didn't mention the Reiki Healer from County Down. <laughs> and uh, there's also like the Dihaxon track is an exclusive track, but also the Jeff Bridges and Kephas collaboration too. Yeah, yeah.
Kephas is my sort of uh, partner in Unloved, mm-hmm. and we do some you know movies together sometimes. We're really close, really good friends, and I mean he's one of my best friends. And we met when I was in LA, and you know we lived in the same street, and you know we hung out all the time. And he was here one night, and I played him the orb, a huge, ever pulsating brain that rules from the center of the ultraverse. I think it's got there. <laughs> yeah. He he'd never heard it before, and completely blew his mind. And he'd been working with Jeff uh, Bridges, and uh, there was this cover version that he recorded with Jeff of a, a, a an old family friend. Of Jeff Bridges, yeah, and it was a song that his friend had actually written that his family used to sing, used to gather and sing in a classic sort of Californian way, <laughs> and uh, and Keith has then took it and, and and added all these scents and actually you should check out the original version which will be on iTunes. It's like 18 minutes long. Oh wow! And it's amazing, yeah. No it's time really for that amazing. One. Well, it is quite long on the mix as well. I mean, it's sort of the centerpiece nearly. It's sort of somewhere in the middle yeah. of the album. It's sort of like. I, I feel like it forms two halves. I'm not sure actually where the mix cuts on the vinyl version of the album, but on the, you know, obviously the MP3, it just runs straight through. Yeah. Well, David, it's been lovely chatting, but I believe you're a very busy man and you probably have so much to go on. I will get out of the studio. I'll leave you to twiddle the, Thanks twiddle so much. the knobs and the parameters. Thanks for coming on, the jewel case. And uh, I know it is sold out, but just remind our listeners about the gig and the launch of the album. The launch of the album is at the Maple Leaf Club. In, in Belfast this Saturday night and I'm going to be DJing for the whole night and uh, unfortunately it is sold out mm. you know Documenter playing BP Fallon's playing Barry Woolnow and Alan McLean are guests who are both coming over from London it's so it's going to be so good <laughs> it promises to be a fab night and the album's going to be you know wherever you get records the Late Night Tales series always is great like I mean one of your collaborators John Hopkins his one's Unbelievable too. Do you have anything on the horizon you'd like to tell us about as well? Any projects? Yeah. Um, I am finishing a six hour long sort of TV series for HBO for Steven Soderbergh called Mosaic. Oh wow. And that stars Sharon Stone and Bo Bridges. And then I am starting another film for him called Logan Lucky, which is his return to cinema nice. with Channing Tatum and Daniel Craig and um, Sandra Bullock. And uh, and in the middle of all that, I've been producing Noel Gallagher's new LP. So <laughs> my dad will, will be dying to hear that one. Well, it's 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 been a great process. Yeah, it's people are going to be very, very, very mm. uh, sort of happily surprised because um, it, 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 it sounds good. So you have been listening to The Jewel Case with me, John Darcy. As usual, we're on Tuesdays at 8pm, so catch up with us next week on Lisburn's 98FM, Bangor FM and FM 105 and down Patrick. com for all your old episodes. You can catch up with the podcast that way. David, is there a track from the Late Night Tales comp that you would like to play us out with? You can play I'm Not In Love by Song Sung because that is the, the lead track of the album. It's a cover of uh, the 10CC classic. And, you know, we had a lot of fun doing it, recorded in this room. I've always loved that track, and I actually really love this version. Yeah.